0: Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Think back to your American history class. We all learned about the Civil War. But what did you learn about the years after the war ended? We'll hear how that history parallels events today.
1: Apparently they were appointing people to register black people to vote, black men. And um, this upset some of the more rabid white people.
0: And we'll meet the creators of a podcast that features firsthand accounts of West Virginia healthcare workers.
2: Very quickly, I realized that there were compelling stories uh, all around me in healthcare, and I, I felt the need to really document those for, for history.
3: Outside of these walls, you really don't have someone who gets it or has a grasp on, again, like I said, their lives have gone on. Mine hasn't. I'm still living COVID seven days a week.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. One of my favorite things to do is to mountain bike. I started riding around the woods near my house as a kid, and later rode the trails at nearby Douthat State Park. I've seen the sport really take off, and I've seen how it can help transform places, like Roanoke, Virginia. Its biking community has really grown, partly because the Blue Ridge Parkway runs right through the city but also because of its amazing mountain biking trails.
2: Pedal, 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 pedal.
0: Like at Carvin's Cove, a natural preserve with more than 60 miles of trail, it's the home turf of a women's mountain biking group called the Roanoke Valley Riveters.
4: We formed the Roanoke Valley Riveters because we felt that there was a need for specifically a mountain bike-focused
0: women's group. This is from a recent short film about the Riveters.
5: So, like, how do you go over some but I would BS to like that? It's about course. body weight shifting. Okay. <laughs> so when you want your front wheel to go up, your
6: weight needs to be in the back. But then as soon as your front wheel is up, you need to lean forward so your front tire digs in and unweights the back of the bike. So it's about the forward-backwards weight shifting. Okay.
0: The seven-and-a-half-minute film was made for the Roanoke Times by photojournalist Heather Rousseau. I recently spoke with Rousseau about the Riveters outside her home in Roanoke. So tell me about the Roanoke Valley Riveters, you know, what what the group is and what they do.
7: I first saw the Roanoke Valley Riveters on Instagram and my heart skipped a beat. I was so excited to see that there was a group of passionate women mountain bikers who wanted to encourage other women to mountain bike and have that, um, what they have said uh, that safe place to to ride and spend time together and have that time to yourself.
0: You said your heart skipped a beat. Are you a rider yourself? Are you mountain bike as well?
7: Yes, I, I love mountain biking and I love mountain biking in the Roanoke Valley area and I had been wanting to do just a cool mountain bike film. Like I'm a photographer, I'm a videographer and I had rode with Pam Keebler in in the past, and she's one of the founders of the group, and she just has so much great energy. Like, anytime you go out with her, she will just make you feel really good. Uh, She's she's funny, and she's smart, and she's so fun to ride with, and I reached out to her, and I asked her if the group would be open to me following them and doing a short little film documentary on the group, and thankfully, they, they were.
0: Well, so this, this film obviously expanded your skills as a photographer and allowed you to stretch out a little bit. How about your skills as a mountain biker?
7: Well, I think, you know, being able to spend time with the Riveters and hearing how well uh, they explain being able to get over features like, like roots and to try new things was really great for me to learn how to talk about mountain biking. Because I honestly, like if, people were to ask me how do I do this I wouldn't have been able to explain it to, to friends because I've never taken a class I've never taken a clinic and Aaron Elena and Pam the founding members and and other members too who have stepped up and um, helped with the lead the rides they're all just really great about talking about how to do something and encouraging you to do something so I definitely learned from them while i was spending time with them
0: what would you tell someone that may hear this and say i'm kind of interested in in trying to do something like that but i don't know how to get started what advice would you offer someone like that especially like a woman listener who might be hearing like what would you tell them
7: go to one of the riveters group rides (laughs) they are very welcoming and (laughs) they're very patient and will help you overcome any fears you have um the Riveters have talked about how good it makes them feel to help somebody get better and try new things that they were scared to do. My written piece does talk about uh, a story that was highlighted by uh, IMBA, the International Mountain Bike Association, how women have started to mountain bike more over the years and when women are more involved on bikes or in outdoor community, that they tend to give back more and are more involved in things like trail planning and uh, group rides and how much of a difference it can make in the community. And that's something Elena talks about in the film about how empowering women to get on bikes also empowers them to give back to the community. And um, I agree with that. And I think it's so powerful what they're doing. Um, The Riveters really are creating a, bigger outdoor community in general.
0: That was Roanoke Times photojournalist Heather Russo, who made a short film about the Roanoke Valley Riveters. You can find a link at our website, wvpublic.org. Ryan McCarthy is a primary care doctor in Martinsburg, West Virginia. He had practiced for years and was well-established when COVID-19 hit in 2020.
2: It's hard to believe that we're we're two years into the pandemic now, but at the beginning, COVID came so quickly to healthcare. and I've been a doctor now for almost 20 years. And I knew as this event came to West Virginia just how historic it was going to be. And it very quickly dawned on me that I was going to have a front row seat.
0: So McCarthy decided to create a podcast to document healthcare workers during the pandemic. His podcast is called Healthcare is Human. He's interviewed doctors, nurses, and other hospital workers, like Donnie Grubb, a nurse who works as a trauma service coordinator. Earlier in the pandemic, he coordinated testing and vaccine clinics in the Eastern Panhandle
3: it's it's good for us to be able to talk about it because as i'm sitting here reflecting like um as much support as we have inside these walls when you're at home people just don't understand they don't understand what you see they don't understand you know my family and friends yes donnie we know you're busy yes we know you're still working yes we know you can't come to happy hour tonight because you have to work but um it's nice to be able to talk about it because you, outside of these walls, you really don't have someone who gets it or has a grasp on, again, like I said, their lives have gone on. Mine hasn't. I'm still living COVID seven days a week.
0: Healthcare workers have been run hard and stretched thin these past two years. In the early days of the pandemic, they were celebrated as heroes. That's something Ryan McCarthy wanted to talk about on the podcast too.
2: Early on, I tell people that my friends that I was very excited to get free coffee at the beginning, you know, when there was the healthcare hero phase. But at the same time, I I started to resent that very quickly. Um, I'm not a hero. I've never felt heroic. Uh, The nurses and healthcare staff and hospital folks that were around me, all of us felt like, you know, we have served in healthcare for a long time and we come to do our jobs under adversity. And so it wasn't heroic, it was just what we do. Um, and we have a commitment to serve our community. And so there was part of that that really bothered me. Also, there were the healthcare hero discussion didn't include so many truly essential people that I rely on every day, like janitors, IT folks, security at the hospital, cashiers, hospital cafeteria workers, folks that are behind the scenes that we rely on. I didn't see them in the healthcare hero discussion. So, when we started this project, it was really to give voice to people that weren't being heard and really allow them to tell their own story because they, they had a front seat just like I do. And I'll never forget meeting uh, Jamal White, who uh, we invited to participate, and he was working as a custodian at the time. And what was really amazing was at the time that we interviewed him, he had. A shirt that basically said, I'm freaking essential. And I even told him that he truly is essential because there he was cleaning the hospital. And that's really the heart and soul of what it takes to survive and and live through a pandemic. So interviewing him uh, was a profound insight into that job on a daily basis.
0: Let's hear a clip from that interview which was recorded on-site as Jamal White was cleaning in the emergency room.
8: The machine that's running in here right now, it kills the COVID. It's an ultra-ray light, light, excuse me, that's like 10 times brighter than the sun. And it runs for the, it depends on the size of the room, from three to ten minutes, three to five to ten minutes. And um, you can't look at it directly because it's been told or said that it'll make you have a seizure. So uh, I just look at that as a real good antidote, if I may, to help with this, um, this Corona virus. So, and it's helping. And I don't only do here, because I was one of the first environmental service assistants um, trained on it. So I have to go up to ICU. um, I have to go to, we have a unit now just for COVID. So I have to go up there, and they say, bring your lights, and I know what that means. So, yeah, so that, that's hopeful. And, then again, it's part of me being an assistant, helping, mm. you know.
0: In addition to audio interviews, the Healthcare is Human podcast also tells stories of healthcare workers through photos. Molly Humphreys is the project's photographer and co-creator. From her view, behind-the-camera lens... Humphrey says she's been surprised at the range of reactions from healthcare workers.
5: It has been a profound experience uh, meeting these people. They all had very different takes on how they were experiencing the pandemic. There was the surprise of, you know, talking to these people and some of them just being so calm and casual about the whole thing and and saying things like, oh, it hasn't been much different, you know, my job just coming in and, you know, not everyone would say that, but there were several people that that would say things like that. Knowing how these worlds had been turned upside down, not only with such a heavy, you know, influx of people in the hospital and all the challenges the hospital is facing, but also their challenges at home. I know their children weren't going to school. I know that they may have had elderly parents at home. So I know that the you know, the difficulties didn't end just in in their work, which is really what our story was covering was at work. But I know that there were, everything was more difficult at home as well. Um, so it was surprising to see some people speak of that and then some people not speak about that and um, not even actually mention that. So it made me sort of wonder, you know, were they keeping a strong face, were Some of the things, you know, when you speak them, you bring them to life sort of thing. So it made me uh, really think a lot about not only what these people have sacrificed at work, but at home and in in their personal lives as well.
0: We're nearly two years into the pandemic. Ryan McCarthy says during the first year, he had to come to terms with admitting just how tired he felt. The second year, he had to make peace with another hard truth, that the pandemic is gonna continue for some time still.
2: I tell my patients on a daily basis that the pandemic is a journey. And so there were, you know, a phase of shock, and then, you know, adjustment, and then, you know, we started to settle in. And then, you know, two years in now, I think lots of people, the reality of this is obvious. I don't have to explain this to anybody anymore. I don't have anybody sitting in my office uh, telling me that COVID is fake, uh, because they have so many family members and people they know who have been ill. So that is different. I think one of the th- hardest things I find personally now in West Virginia healthcare is I, I can't tell people when when this is over. Um, and early on, people asked me about that, but nobody asks anymore because I, I think there's this silent recognition that this is here to stay for for some time, even though we're two years in. And Omicron could be a a huge change because it's touched so many people and we'll have to see in in spring and summer of 2022. But I have a lot of resignation um, about, you know, I'm going to probably wear a mask uh, for who knows how long in my career. It might be forever. And, And some of these adjustments in society, I've just, I've accepted. Humphrey's,
0: Says she's seen selflessness in healthcare workers. But outside of the project, she's concerned by the way some people treat each other.
5: My hope for our society is that we can come out of this with a greater compassion and understanding for one another. We have been challenged in that respect in so many ways throughout this pandemic. And, and to be honest, it's been very disheartening in a lot of ways throughout the past two years. My hope is that we can reflect and really grow from this and learn how to take care of each other. And at the end of the day, we all need to be looking out for one another.
2: I definitely have some concerns, um, but like Molly was saying, this project where we take pictures and talk to healthcare workers. You know, maybe there was a deep need inside of me to have something that I knew would keep my hope alive. And maybe looking back after 2 years, maybe that's why we started this. It has been very inspiring to to talk to selfless healthcare workers and hear their extraordinary stories. There were moments in the pandemic when I realized that every person in front of me, every patient was simply doing their best and I just assumed they were having the worst day possible. And I assumed that their family life had been upended. And I realized that the best thing that I could do would be to extend them all the grace that I possibly could and all the benefit of every doubt. In other words, the opposite of being judgmental, testy and impatient. Um, and as a, as a crusty primary care doctor in middle age, I can get impatient and testy pretty quickly. But I hope that, Molly used the word compassion, and I think that's important. Um, if there were to be some spirit of solidarity amongst humanity where we extend that benefit of the doubt to our fellow human in front of us, I really hope that that's what my kids learn from this. They have been a, a source of inspiration because they have just rolled with the punches and just you know wanted to get on with their lives and I, I really hope that we take that with us going forward. I know when the pandemic ends and it will end, this will not last forever. I know that humanity's collective memory is short, and we will we will run away from this experience, you know and try to forget. Um, as much as possible, but I hope that all of us that have lived through this take that compassion and the idea of respecting the human being in front of us.
0: Another thing McCarthy hopes we'll remember are the moments we did come together and show compassion for each other. One of the episodes features Betsy Gambino former ER nurse with 19 years of experience, who now mostly works in administration. She spoke with McCarthy about her pandemic experience.
9: Thinking back to the earlier months when we had patients that were here for 28, 29 days and we were their family. We were the person that was with them all day, every day when they were here. We got close to these people and then no matter what we did, we couldn't help these people. We did our best, we tried everything. And we lost these people, like they were our family. They were part of us. So it's hard on, I think, everybody here that's taking care of some of these COVID patients and not even COVID, just patients, um, you know, that were here for extended periods of time, that, you know, we, no matter what we did, we couldn't help them, we couldn't save them but we help them through their transition period.
2: I mean, I, I hear how, how rewarding that can be. Where We are doing this for these patients. I did this for these patients. But at the same time, while you were doing it, I mean, were there days that were just so hard and heavy where you, th- where you thought to yourself, I, I can't do this today?
9: For sure. Um, so they're another part of my job like uh, I want to say other duties as assigned because if the need came up and there wasn't anybody available to do it I can do it um, so I was able to help with some of the reporting the mandatory reporting for positives um, for COVIDs. so every day we would get the list of all the positives and we would go through their charts and pull out what the state needed you know their names you know specific things about them to try to track Initially, we were hoping to find a pattern to say, this blood type or this comorbidity, um, you know, that this person is likely to have a better outcome, a worse outcome, so things like that. So there were some days where you were in 20 to 30 charts every day, looking at these people, submitting this information to the state. And so at the end of the day, when you can connect, oh my gosh, this person was over here and they were exposed in this manner and in this way and it could have been prevented or, you know, like you're in these people's lives and it gets into your head and into your heart. And it's very hard to swallow sitting here thinking how helpless at times we are. And at the same time, had they one case that we could track multiple cases from had these people been together with a mask, would this have made a difference? Would mm. this person not had died? Had they not went to that specific place or not been around that one person? You know, different things like that. I think it's hard to shut that off when you're sitting here for hours, you know, filling out these, oh, these sure. forms. It's hard to turn that off. So I did find myself trying to find, just to do something to shut my brain off.
0: That was Betsy Gambino, a nurse and administrator, talking with Dr. Ryan McCarthy. They both work at Berkeley Medical Center in West Virginia's eastern panhandle. The interview was part of a podcast called Healthcare is Human. You can listen to the full series on Apple Podcasts. We've posted a link on our website, wvpublic.org. There, you can also see Molly Humphrey's photos of Betsy Gambino, Jamal White, Donnie Grubb, and other healthcare workers. Later in the show, we'll learn about a period in time just after the Civil War and how that history parallels events today.
1: It's not a surprise that there's Klansmen, there's uh, still some skinheads around here. I thought they were gone, but they're still here. We know they're here, we know who some of them are.
0: Back in a minute, you're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
10: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.
0: Before the pandemic, the duo Stuart Owen Dance largely performed far beyond their home in Old Fort, North Carolina traveled around the country making a living as dancers teachers and choreographers but as with a lot of us the pandemic has pushed them to stay closer to home blue ridge public radio's matt Piken brings us this story
8: Oh, uh, okay so janice can you lift your eyes
11: when you do that gavin stewart and vanessa owen are rehearsing with two other dancers inside a studio at the wortham center for performing arts everyone is masked
8: yeah 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 that's juicy yeah, nice.
11: They had such grand plans for their collaboration with the Asheville storytelling poet Gina Cornejo. They would have seated the audience in the middle of the dance floor, as if inside the hole of a donut, and performed the piece all around them. Instead, as they have done so often during the pandemic, Stuart and Owen have improvised. They had planned to perform a piece called Dirty Laundry in front of an audience. They're now converting this into a video production that will stream online to ticket holders.
3: Three months ago, we probably would have said, well, let's just wait until we
8: can do it live.
4: (laughs) But I will say, I think this is now pivot four for Dirty Laundry. And so for Gina, Gavin, and I, we're also just so ready to do it because we've been talking about it for over a year.
11: Before the pandemic, Stuart and Owen would perform once or twice each year in this region, but largely worked far beyond their home in Old Fort. They traveled to dance festivals around the country to market themselves as teachers and choreographers, and they made their living from the ensuing gigs and commissions.
4: Because we both do this together and we're married, it, that's a big part of why we feel you know, it's necessary for us to only do things where we can get some funding, because it's our whole lives, our whole income yeah. Our whole everything. We have yet to acquire a sugar daddy. A a bread and butter.
11: (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps no performers in this region have diversified and adapted their art to the pandemic as Stewart and Owen. In July of 2020, they choreographed dance for film at the request of a company doing cultural diplomacy work for the U.S. State Department. Soon after, Ray Jeffrey of the Wortham asked them to create an ensemble dance production in the parking lot of the Asheville Outlet Mall. Their attire included tennis shoes, knee pads, and gloves.
4: We were rehearsing on this, you know, black... Asphalt top, it yeah. was we were in masks outside in hundred degrees rehearsing. I mean it was insane. <laughs> we had conversations about if we're contacting the asphalt with our hands, are we gonna catch COVID because someone had walked there earlier that day, you know? Yeah. But because of the circumstances I
11: think we let was go like, into it. Yeah,
4: I like mean... our bodies handled it because we were so grateful to be doing art.
11: Over the past two years, they've taught dance classes and set new work over Zoom in Tulsa, Tampa, and elsewhere. But as the pandemic stretched, Owen and Stuart leaned into their own dance work through local collaborations. Back at the Wortham, they teamed with Cornejo for the first time while also pairing up other dancers and writers. For their performances, the couple placed audiences in pods and choreographed their movements along with that of the performers to maximize social distancing.
6: I abandoned, I heave ho all, all, all of the his, his, his into this
7: room
12: so soon to jump ship myself.
4: We were already sort of equipped to be making dance while isolated because when we moved to this area, that's kind of how it felt for us after having lived in big cities where we were part of bigger dance communities. So we had already been taking classes online in our living room for years before the pandemic. So we were kind of in that mindset already when the pandemic started. And I think for us, maybe it didn't feel like as much of a shock to the system.
12: Months at sea. Mm a solo sailor, anchor holding steady still, my bones now find solace in the sorrow.
4: We were always traveling so much prior to the pandemic that we really didn't get to know a lot of artists in this community until the pandemic. So now we've developed all of these relationships with people who are incredible in their medium and I think we'll continue to collaborate in that way.
11: The threat of snow last weekend loomed over their scheduled video shoot for the Dirty Laundry stream. But Owen and Stewart seemed
0: unfazed by yet another curveball
11: thrown in their direction. I'm Matt Pikin, BPR News.
0: Dirty Laundry was streamed earlier this month through the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. You can find a link on our website, wvpublic.org. Work life is changing. More and more people are becoming independent workers and contractors. As Jessica Lilly reports, new technology, training, and tools are helping some independent workers in West Virginia adapt to the changing economy.
6: (laughs) Hi, babies. What are you doing? During a hot afternoon last summer, daycare owner Amy Hubbard walks through a gate to greet children on a playground in Greenbrier County. I love kids.
11: It's, It's my passion. I've been a lifelong learner, but I also am drawn to the
6: future drawn to learning not just for myself but to help kids get there hubbard has degrees in education and experience as a childcare worker for 21 years she worked at an alternative school in virginia called boys home despite her experience though starting her new daycare business was hard for one thing the equipment she first bought for this playground wasn't up to regulation
11: i made so many mistakes So many mistakes in the beginning, and those were hard lessons,
6: but I learned them. Little Learners Educational Daycare got off the ground in 2018, and business is good. But Hubbard faces other challenges, like how to save for her retirement. She's not alone, according to a recent study funded by the Appalachian Regional Commission managed by WISER, which stands for Women's Institute for a Secure Retirement. The study found that independent workers like Hubbard needed help with three main areas of benefits taxes, emergency savings, and retirement savings. Diane Browning manages Wiser's rural retirement project.
13: Independent workers, from child care workers to gig workers to small business owners, don't have easy access to benefits. It requires people to build their own safety net from health insurance to retirement savings, to emergency fund, to life insurance. It is a crazy patchwork out there putting that together.
6: So Wiser partnered with a company that developed an app or digital platform called Catch.
7: And it's called Catch because the safety net catches you.
13: And they have a very easy online platform for accessing
6: health insurance, retirement savings, emergency savings, in a tax withholding product. Wiser also partnered with organizations they knew worked with independent workers frequently, like Mountain Heart, a resource and referral agency in 30 West Virginia counties, which helps to subsidize child care costs for low-income families. Hubbard trusts Mountain Heart, so she quickly signed up with Catch. It's been a good start for Hubbard. I um, have chosen to
11: utilize an IRA And what happens is Catch is notified when I have a deposit in my bank. And they ask me, how much of this would you like to set aside? And I identify the amount, whether it be a dollar amount or a percentage, that I would like to set aside. And then they uh, put that into my IRA account, so it's invested for me. So it's growing. I wouldn't have been able to do that without their guidance. I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it, number one. And number two, the knowledge.
6: Wiser also partnered with farmers and tech groups such as Central App, a tech training firm. That's how tech contract worker Rebecca Lilly found out about the resource. Lilly is a lead Salesforce administrator and developer. Um,
12: So this is my office. What a nice view. Yes, I enjoy this tremendously because the office that I had before... Um, I had two little tiny windows that didn't even open. And now you have your corner office. And now I have my,
6: I do, actually don't have my
12: corner office. Um,
6: Lily also found the job and training through Central App. She has a degree in computer science, and after 25 years working at a small computer software company, Lily left her full-time salaried job. Now she works as an independent contractor for a company out of Chicago, from the comfort of her own home in Raleigh County. Um, I have had very little phone interaction with people. It's all through Teams meetings, and I love it. I also
12: don't have to do a lot of hardware support, and I love that too. Mm. I do not miss helping people with printers and why is windows so slow and stuff like that. I don't miss that at all.
6: After Central App shared information about Catch with Lily, she found help towards financial independence.
12: I'd never heard of it, but it's set up for people like me who are in contractor positions, who don't have employer-provided, like 401k options or health insurance. I knew I needed an account
6: for taxes. It's more than finding financial stability. For Lily, it's honoring her father's teachings. He wanted us
12: to be able to provide for ourselves. He told me and both my sisters that because he said you never know when something will happen and you will be put in the position because of a death or an illness or whatever that you have to provide. I want to know that you girls can take care of yourselves.
6: And each person closer to financial security is a step to a better community.
0: That was West Virginia public broadcasting reporter Jessica Lilly reporting from southern West Virginia. Think back to your American history class. What did you learn about the years after the Civil War? The years of Reconstruction. In 1865, the federal government set up a program to help formerly enslaved people, providing them with food, helping them find employment, and even registering them to vote. But there was pushback and harassment against those who tried to help freed black people. Reporter Lily Kinnep has been looking into this history for Blue Ridge Public Radio. Our producer Roxy Todd spoke with Kinnep about what she found and what historians told her about parallels to today. So
13: what was the Freedmen's Bureau? So the Freedmen's Bureau was was installed after the Civil War as this way to improve access to food and education and work for for freed Black people after the Civil War. And so it ended up like a lot of the areas that had been occupied by troops, then they kind of brought in the Freedmen's Bureau and set up these offices with lieutenants to I guess, help facilitate change, basically, and make sure that um, people who had been freed after the Civil War were able to remain free. And a lot of the work was helping register freed slaves to vote, right? That's correct. That was some of what the Freedmen's Bureau did as well, um, was setting up local people, whether they be freed black men or otherwise, to register these men to vote. At that point, women still couldn't vote, and it was before the 15th Amendment of the Constitution had been passed. But they were really registering these men to vote to let them vote for the first time in the 1868 election. And then ended up being a really important election in North Carolina. And Stephen Nash, who's a historian who has studied this region, said that really being able to register black men to vote in this election is what swung the state to the Republican Party, which that was the state that had emancipated slavery at that time. Through registering these men to vote, they were able to kind of they felt keep the country together and have a Republican governor win in North Carolina that year. So one of the people who you researched was Virgil Bryson. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Sure thing. So Virgil Bryson was one of the freed Black men who was registering other Black men to vote in Jackson County. He was being intimidated by the KKK the former Jackson County sheriff and people who came to his house you know, broke his windows stole his horse and attacked some of his friends to try and get him to stop registering other black men to vote and so he was is a really interesting figure because you know we just don't hear a lot from black people in this region during this time you know this is 1867 1868 I spoke with Barbara McCray, who was a local historian in Macon County, and she unfortunately passed away in March last year, but she had done a lot of research into the Freedmen's Bureau and into Virgil Bryson in particular, and so she, she told me a lot about his story.
1: Apparently, they were appointing people to register black people to vote, black men, and also as inspectors of the elections to make sure that nothing went wrong. And um,
13: this upset some of the more rabid white people. I found Alerna Bryson Forney, who is a local Jackson County woman, who, you know, she shares a name with Bryson and talked a lot to me about what that meant to her to understand this person who she could have been related to, who had this big role in Jackson County history.
1: It was interesting But the ones that really knew the history, some of them really wouldn't even talk because you need to leave skeletons in the closet. (laughs) I'll say good, bad or otherwise, that's what made us who we are. But some of the older ones did not get it. They did not mind giving their family tree. But true history, you know, the things that you heard and seeing the things I heard, I couldn't say because I was not there.
6: Do
13: the historians you spoke with see any parallels with our current moment in history? Absolutely. So while I was working on this story, I really learned a lot about this period in history. And this 1868 election that we're talking about, where registered Black men were, were able to vote for the first time, and how that really swung the election for the Republicans, that was a win at that point. And then After that, the pendulum kind of swung back and there was kind of a a pushback by the local governments after the Freedmen's Bureau left and people began to kind of intimidate voters again. And so the historians that I spoke with really drew that line between the way that voting rights were being respected and everyone was being allowed to vote to violence and voting rights not being respected in 1898, and then building off of that to the current news, you know, as we're still uh, seeing people be tried for January 6th charges for the insurrection at the Capitol, and as they were trying to stop the election results from being ratified for the 2020 election, and so just that line between voting rights and and violence was something that local historians were really clear about, and you can hear that from Stephen Nash or even from Eleanor Bryson Forney. You know, as a Black woman in Jackson County, what she's seen.
1: It's not a surprise that there's Klansmen. There's uh, still some skinheads around here. I thought they were gone, but they're still here. You know. Um... And you know, so I said, it's, we know they're here. We know who some of them are. And I thank our last president for his service because he took the sheets off a lot of them.
13: And I think what Miss Forney is trying to say there is just that she has seen racism in the community in Western North Carolina and in the United States overall. And really, um, since president Trump has been campaigning since he, you know, won the presidency, she's seen some of the racism that was maybe behind closed doors or, you know, not in the public eye really coming out front and center in, in Western North Carolina and the United States. Um, in a way that I guess she sees as helpful to, to make it more clear, you know, that there is still racism in America and that this is still an issue that needs to be solved by all people. But, you know, talking with Miss Forney is was inspiring for me as a person because she really appreciated learning about this history um, in her family, in this region, with the Freedmen's Bureau and Virgil Bryson and you know wasn't surprised at all that there was someone at that time pushing for rights for her ancestors and really just making positive impact for change and and, and that was just really great to hear i think it's awesome and i never doubted it because
1: i think every era has a powerful black person and we may not know who they are totally you know it doesn't surprise me but it's nice to know i, I believe you know God puts people, different people in different places at different times. And, it, and it's just so nice to know that there was somebody that was bold enough to get out there and got out there as much as they could. I think that is just fantabulous.
0: That was Eleanor Bryson Forney, who lives in Jackson County, North Carolina. She's been looking into the history of Virgil Bryson, a freedman who helped register other formerly enslaved people to vote. Before her, we heard reporter Lily Knepp of Blue Ridge Public Radio talking with Roxy Todd. We'd like to hear your feedback. how we talk about the history of reconstruction and how it's taught in our schools. It's a controversial topic right now. State legislatures across our region are debating how schools should teach American history when it comes to the subject of race. We're going to be digging into this issue in an episode next month, so stay tuned and reach out. What are people saying where you live? Email us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Tweet us at inappalachia. We recently heard back from one of our listeners, Christopher Wood. He was teaching in China and began listening to Inside Appalachia There to help him feel connected to home. Well, Christopher actually made a move last year. Here's where he is now.
10: Since August of this past summer, I've moved back to the United States from Beijing, China, and I've relocated and secured a job here in Charleston, West Virginia. And I have not regretted that decision. In comparing what it's like to teach here in the United States back with what it's like to teach in communist China, there are surprisingly a lot more similarities than there are differences. It took me being in China to discover that with the language barrier and the culture barrier, there are still times I think and miss being in China, but I'm happy that I've adapted well being back in this state and looking forward to exploring the mountains and the waterways especially come this summer holiday. I'm glad to at this time call West Virginia my home.
0: Thanks for keeping in touch Christopher and for letting us know what inside Appalachia means to you. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. West Swing, and Dinosaur Burbs. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our interim executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Caitlin Pan and Xander Alloy also help produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Check out our website, wvpublic.org slash Inside There, you can subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.